0: published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. This is an episode if you are feeling down, if you are feeling up, if you are feeling engaged about American politics. If if Donald Trump being elected has left you feeling that, hey, American politics really is great. You can make America great again, even if you come from humble beginnings as the son of a real estate magnate. Or similarly, if it's made you feel powerless, look who can get elected in this country. You need to listen and think a little bit about what Jennifer Lawless has to say. Lawless is a professor at American University. Her work has focused on political representation of women, of young people. She has written a fantastic book along with Richard Fox called Running From Office, which is all about why young Americans have really soured on being part of the political process. And I want you to listen to this episode with that in mind. This is really an episode about why you should run for office. Yes, you, whatever your politics are, whatever the time commitment you can offer is, it is not as hard as you think. It is more important than you think. It is necessary for the American experiment to work, that good people, that a, a large swath of people, that a representative swath of people actually participate in American politics. And it's important when you say, when you hear the words running for office, that you don't just hear Congress, Senate presidency, that you're thinking about local positions, that you're thinking about school boards, state legislature. A lot of this is a lot more open to folks than you think, a lot of it could be more meaningful than you think. Jennifer Lawless is the right person to hear this from, and I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, a couple of requests, but but here's a specific one. We have some jobs open at Vox that I think will be of a lot of interest to people listening to the show. We have a number of policy reporter and editor jobs, including we want somebody to look at politics right now through the lens of the media and media coverage of it. I'm looking for a producer to work with me on a video series about policy. We are looking for folks to cover the economy, folks to cover the new administration, we are looking for a senior policy columnist, go to voxmedia.com. There's a careers tab. You can go check it out there. I think a lot of you might be interested in these jobs, and certainly I would love to work with some of you. As always, please share the show with your friends, check out our other podcast, The Weeds, and continue to send me your feedback at Show at Vox.com. All that said, here is Jennifer Lawless. Jennifer Lawless, welcome to the show. thanks for having me. I have been excited to have this conversation with you because your research points in a more hopeful direction than maybe American politics has been recently. But it points that way by telling you exactly how depressed everybody is about American politics. So I wanted to read a stat that I I got from you and have you maybe unpack it a little bit. You wrote that that in your surveys, 89% of high school and college students, 89% have already decided that they will never run for office. Why is that a problem? (laughs)
2: It's a problem because we have more than 500,000 elected positions in this country. And so a lot of the time we think about the presidency, we think about Congress, we might think about governors, but we don't realize that at the state and local levels, literally hundreds of thousands of people are making decisions. So if the next generation has generally written off the idea of running for office themselves, what that means is that the people that will choose to run, who will select to become politicians, won't be representative of the next generation, they'll be fundamentally different and probably more interested in acquiring power or doing more of the same than bringing about real change. Do
1: we think that's different than how it's been until now? I mean, one thing that your surveys can't do is tell us how kids felt 30 years ago.
2: That's right. A limitation is that we conducted the research at one point in time. So we did it during the 2012 presidential election. We don't know whether in the past people have thought more positively about running. But there are a few things that we do know that suggest that they don't. So we know that the students that we surveyed and interviewed in 2012 are less likely to talk about politics with their families and friends than previous generations of young people. We know that the high school and college students we surveyed in 2012 are less likely than previous generations to access political media. And we also know that they hold politicians in lower regard than previous generations. So given that all of those things predict interest and running for office, we'd expect that previous generations would have also had more interest in doing that.
1: So there's a dynamic here that I think is really, it's interesting and in in a way it's not intuitive. I might have thought that if you look at American politics and you say, this is a goat rodeo, this is terrible, (laughs) that what it would make you want to do is change it. And what your research posits, I think, is something closer to a turnoff effect, that the worse American politics gets, the more people want to disengage from it. And so the worse it can get, which is a very dangerous kind of feedback loop.
2: It is. And the reason that Richard Fox and I make that case is because when we talk to these kids, not only about whether they're interested in running for office, but their views of the political system in general, almost off the bat, they tell us stories about the worst behavior that they can remember. Their first political memories are either Bill Clinton lying about Monica Lewinsky or George Bush lying about weapons of mass destruction. When we ask them whether they think Congress Oh, works, this generation
1: is going to be... terrible. <laughs> that seems quaint.
2: I know. It was cute, right? When we ask them about... Whether they think Congress is functioning, they can come up with a litany of examples of Congress just not doing its job. And when we ask them about the kinds of qualities that politicians have, they don't think it's unusual for a politician to be an adulterer or to send pornographic photos via Twitter. That's just the norm. And they think these are not the kinds of qualities that I have. And if I want to affect change, there are other ways to do it. You
1: know, it's funny to go back maybe in a more normative way to this question of the past versus the present. What you just said is so interesting because my guess is it is actually much less likely right now for a politician to be an adulterer. I don't know for <laughs> sure, but all political history I read from the 20th century and the 19th century appears to say everybody was a bastard. <laughs> and, and they just didn't and, get caught. And, and, or or they, it wasn't put out on the 24-hour news cycle. And they right. were more corrupt, right? That's the, the other interesting thing about this, that, that when I talk to younger kids, I am struck not surprised but struck by how corrupt they think American politics is. But if you go back and you read Robert Caro's work on Lyndon Johnson, that is corruption on a scale I think it is even hard to imagine right now. And there's a way in which the transparency, both a legislated transparency but also the way the media reports on politicians, we've sort of thrown back the curtain in a way that has made everything much too human, much too small and made people feel politics is a fundamentally gross enterprise.
2: I think that's right, and I think the twenty four hour news cycle makes it worse because there really isn't twenty four hours worth of salacious stuff going on, right? Well, right there now, a few maybe, exa- <laughs> right. <laughs> and for the next four years, right. perhaps. But generally, what happens is if you watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, you see the same story played over and over and over again. But it's always that negative same story. So if you're a casual observer. Whenever you turn on the TV or whenever you pull up your news alert on your phone, you're going to see that negative news, even if it's the same person over and over again or the same set of men behaving badly. But that sort of sends a broad message that these are the kinds of people that we are seeing in politics and they're the most high profile examples of what it must be like.
1: Some of the survey results you have in here that are the most striking to me are when you had young people rate different professions against each other. Could you just walk through that data?
2: Sure. So we asked people in a variety of ways whether they would ever be interested in running, because as you mentioned, 89% said that they would never consider it. But these are high school and college students who might not even know for sure exactly what a career is in politics. So we also gave them a couple of scenarios. And we said, imagine that the following jobs all pay the same and involve the same time commitment. What would you rather be? And in the first scenario, we asked them if they would rather be a mayor of a town, a teacher, a small business owner or a salesperson. And mayor of a town came in a distant third. Salesperson was the only thing that came in behind that. And then we asked them about higher echelon professions. So again, they pay the same amount of money. They require the same amount of time. Would you rather be a business executive, a lawyer, a high school principal, or a member of Congress? And member of Congress came in dead last. And what I always say is, who wants to be a high school principal? I mean, that just sounds so challenging and so horrible
1: to me. Well, it's also... And I'm I'm taking nothing away from high school principals here. Just for kids in school, I do not remember being enamored of my high school authorities when I was in
2: high school. Right. And importantly... They didn't really want to be high school principals either. They much preferred business executive or lawyer. It was just that member of Congress was less appealing than high school principal. And then the last thing that we did was we gave them 20 different professions, scientist, journalist, doctor, lawyer, and included in those 20 were mayor, state legislator, and member of Congress. And when we ranked the professions, people could check off as many as they might ever be interested in holding. The three political professions came in 17th, 18th, and 19th. The only thing that was less appealing was a plumber. And so we've gotten to the point right now where it doesn't matter how you ask the question. It doesn't matter what kind of position you're asking people to consider. Young people really don't want to run for office.
1: You have a line in, I don't remember if it's in a book or in a piece I read from you, but you write that our political system is built on the premise that running for office is something that a broad group of citizens should want to do. And I'd like to have you unpack that a bit, because I think it's an important piece of it here. If 89% of folks don't want to run for office, who cares? 11% is still a lot of people. But if we do not have a broad representation in government, something will go wrong.
2: Right. And I think it will go wrong potentially on a policy front in that the people that run might not represent the preferences or the interests of the general population. But on top of that, it really makes it difficult to sustain any kind of electoral competition. We know that the incumbency advantage at the congressional level is already through the roof. Even when do, do
1: you wanted to just say what is the incumbency advantage? Sure.
2: So the incumbency advantage is when a member of Congress or any elected official decides to seek reelection, that person has a series of advantages associated with the position that makes it very easy to win. So they already have name recognition, they're able to raise money, they have a following. And what that means is that In a Congress this time around where it was difficult to find people that approved of anything Congress was doing, 95 percent of the incumbents who sought re-election were re-elected. At the state legislative level, the numbers are just as high. And at the local level, there is virtually no electoral competition. In some of the biggest cities, races for mayor will generate quite a bit of attention and quite a number of candidates. But when we're looking at the school board or most city councils or races for aldermen, Anybody who wants to run can, and often they run unopposed. So there's very little accountability. People aren't following those races. People aren't challenging the incumbents, and no one's holding them accountable.
1: What do you think about the fact that there's this paradox in polling around Congress, where people hate Congress, but they they relatively like their member of Congress?
2: Well, that... Ironclad reality was turned on its head in 2014 when polls indicated that people said, 49 percent of people said that they were willing to replace every member of Congress, including their own, with random people walking down the street. They then obviously didn't do that because— Ninety five percent of congressional incumbents got reelected. But I think what happens is the things they hate about Congress, they like in their own congressperson because it's what they perceive as corruption or deal making that ultimately helps their district. So they don't like it that the other four hundred and thirty four districts benefit from that. But they like what's coming back to their own hometown.
1: It seems to me that what people follow is national politics. They follow the drama of the presidency. They follow the Senate and the House to a lesser degree. They tune into Fox or CNN or MSNBC and they see Paul Ryan talking or Nancy Pelosi talking or Donald Trump tweeting and that is not the bulk of politics in this country. As you say, and and it's the number that I I keep coming back to in in your book, I did not know before I read your book there are 500,000 elected positions, right? And we're talking, when you're looking at Congress and the presidency, 530, whatever it is, six, seven. And it seems to me that because people are watching this highly polarized, highly ideological, highly conflictual, highly toxic national drama play out... Their views on that, which are very negative, are dripping down into state and local politics, which often have a very different flavor. And so you end up with a situation where people don't pay attention to local politics but also have developed very negative views on it because the brand of politics has been so tainted by the national enterprise.
2: That's right. People view politics through a national lens and that national lens highlights the most inefficient, dysfunctional aspects of the political system. But because there's just not that much local news, local news is a dying breed. And because they're not that interested, the assumption that what they see at the national level trickles down is rarely challenged in their day-to-day lives. And so they assume that it's bad across the board, when in reality, most of these local offices are nonpartisan. So the constant fighting between Democrats and Republicans, which is what turns so many people off, is often absent entirely from what's going on at the local level, and people don't even know that.
1: Have you ever run for office?
2: I have. I ran for Congress in 2006.
1: Tell me about that race.
2: So I ran in a Democratic primary against a Democratic incumbent in a very, very progressive district because I thought that he wasn't sufficiently progressive. The incumbency advantage, it turns out, is true and real, and he was reelected and is still in Congress.
1: Tell me, but tell me about the experience of running. Uh, what would somebody who has not run, has not really followed a congressional race of that closely, what was true about it? What did it ask of you or give to you that one wouldn't expect?
2: Well, I can say honestly, and it was 10 years ago, that it is still the most meaningful experience I've ever had in my life. And the reason is because rarely do we get an opportunity to talk to people and understand what problems they're facing, the help that they need, and what they think government should do. And one of the things that I did during the campaign was I walked 110 miles throughout the district. So there were 20 cities and towns, and I just did this continuous 110-mile walk over the course of several days. And the point was to go into every city and town and literally talk to every single person I came across or to go into every business that I could. And that was an incredibly meaningful experience because at the time, Medicare Part D was being debated and discussed and it wasn't working for a lot of people and you'd go into a pharmacy and it wasn't this abstract idea about people not being able to access prescription drugs. It was people standing in line at CVS really not knowing how they were going to afford the prescription medication they needed. The other thing that was really compelling to me was that so many people had never before met a candidate, let alone an elected official. And although they didn't necessarily have very positive views of the political system, they were so excited by the prospect of talking to somebody that might be able to change things or make their lives better. And To this day, when I talk to people about politics now, that's the recollection that I have because so many people rely on elected officials to represent them and to be their voices. And that's part of the reason that it's so important that a broad swath of people run.
1: I think one thing people assume when they hear about running for office is you can't run if you don't have money, if you're not rich or you don't know a lot of rich people. I can't speak for your financial circumstance, but I don't know how how American University pays, (laughs) but I don't think it's uh, huge. So how were you able to run? I mean, can you just sign up? You just walk out? How does it work?
2: Right. So the first thing I would note is that Congressional races are expensive. The average congressional race in the last cycle cost about $1.2 million. I ran in Rhode Island. I was a professor at Brown at the time. They also don't pay a lot. But Rhode Island was a one-media market state, which meant that to get on TV even for a month with sustained ads prior to the election, you only needed about $500,000 only. And so I didn't have any money, but I was able to raise it because you are embedded in the community and you associate with like-minded people and in interest groups that want to advocate for your cause. Wait, and you, they just, introduce you just tripped you to into people. political
1: science language.
2: Interest groups.
1: Interest groups, like-minded, like-minded people. No, no. So
2: let me give you an example.
1: How do you – you go from nothing to having you, enough money to compete. Like who do you call? So what it's happens?
2: slow. It's a slow process, right? So you start calling – The people that you know and your friends and your family, which in a lot of ways are the most difficult calls to make because they know you and they can say no and you can take it personally. If you call a stranger and ask them for money and they say no, you don't even know who that person is. When your mom says, "Eh, I don't know about this, it's a problem. (laughs) My mom did max out. She gave the full amount. Um and so you start like that. And so I was able to raise, I don't know, about fifteen or twenty thousand dollars that way, which was enough to Get the campaign off the ground. I was very lucky. I had two students who had just graduated from Brown who were willing to work full time for free until we raised enough money to pay them. And so with the initial $20,000 and a staff of mostly volunteers, we were able to start making connections in the community. So one of the issues that I was very passionate about and that I thought my opponent was wrong on was a woman's right to choose. So we went to Planned Parenthood and we made our case and they supported us and they introduced me to many of their supporters who would support a pro-choice candidate. And that became a snowball effect. And you become more and more embedded in the community and you meet more and more people who wind up being willing to introduce you to other people who can ultimately give you money. And then once we had raised about $50,000, we were able to hire a professional fundraising consultant who gave us access to the kinds of people who are well positioned to give a lot of money. And it just got to the point where then I was calling strangers who I knew supported pro-choice candidates who didn't necessarily live in their state. And I would sit in a pretty dark room for seven hours a day and dial.
1: So that- Last part.
2: (laughs) Sounds fun, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) It doesn't just not sound fun. I am not the world's most extroverted person. I don't know (laughs) properly if I would survive it. So I'll say when I was in college, I wanted to run for office when I was older. And uh, I don't think I will now, but one of the reasons I realized that this probably wouldn't work that well for me is that the idea of doing that kind of fundraising, the idea of having to have those kinds of socially difficult conversations with people I didn't know over and over and over and over and over again, a million uh, discussions at a bar where the person doesn't want to go out with you. (laughs) (laughs) It, It sounded very tough. So talk to me a little bit about how you How that feels, how you developed the muscles to do it.
2: At the beginning, it was awful. And I would do anything I possibly could to get out of it. So much so that at one point, my campaign manager said to me, if you don't start making more of these phone calls, we have to shut down because we cannot pay the rent. And the reality of that really struck me. And I figured, all right, there are lots of aspects of every job that everybody has that they don't like. This is just going to be one of those aspects. And so I had a fundraising director who I was I was horrible. I can't believe he agreed to this. I would make him sit with me in this dark room because I could not be trusted to actually dial the numbers. It was so appalling at the beginning. And it was such a hideous task that unless he dialed the phone and handed it to me, I wouldn't make the call. But about two weeks into this, I mean, it's terrible, right? It's this tough love approach. About two weeks in, you actually realize that you're raising money for a cause. It's not really just so that you can run. It's because you know that you're going to be a better representative than the person you're running against. And for me, it took about two weeks for that light switch to go on. And once it did, I felt like I was much better when I was making these asks. And it also became a somewhat entertaining prospect because 90% of the time you're getting voicemail. And so when somebody actually does pick up the phone, you're so happy to be speaking to a live human being that you're excited to make the case.
1: This feels to me like an undernoticed way that money in politics warps politics. The idea that running for office is limited to people. I want to note because we are falling a little bit into this trap of talking – we're talking about your experience, but we're talking here about Congress and these are very expensive. And I really want to put a pin in the idea that running for local office often is not like this, not at this level. But this is a way it seems to me that not having publicly financed elections really limits the type of people who are willing to participate. Because it's one thing to say, hey, do you want to put yourself out there in front of the voters and talk to people and make speeches and take votes and try to persuade people that you have the right vision for the country and that you can help? And it's another thing to say to somebody, do you want to spend seven hours a day in a dark windowless room begging strangers (laughs) for money? Right. And it's not even that doing that is so corrupting. It probably isn't when you're doing that kind of small donor donations or – but it is – As I said, I think there are a lot of people who look at that and say, like, that that is so far from my experience, I can't even imagine how I would stomach it.
2: Right. And I guess I have a few reactions to that. The first is that the only way you can get through it is because you know that you're raising money so that you can promote your ideas and make sure that your message reaches a broader number of people. If you decide that you live in a place where there's no way that you're going to get on TV. So, for example, if you live in Philadelphia or if you live in New Jersey, it costs probably seven or eight times as much to air a TV ad as it does in Rhode Island. A lot of candidates don't do that, which means that their budget will change entirely. But you still need to raise several hundred thousand dollars, right? So the first thing is you have to be able to link the asking for money to the promotion of the message, which is why you're running in the first place. The other thing I would say is that you're exactly right. A lot of state legislative races, and certainly races at the local level, don't cost anywhere close to several hundred thousand dollars. When I was running in Rhode Island, I remember looking at the state legislature and thinking, oh my gosh, it would be so much easier to do that. I didn't want that position. But I remember at the time looking at how much those state legislative races cost the previous cycle, and the average race cost less than $8,000. So- that becomes a lot easier for somebody to stomach and a lot easier to think about how to raise than 1.2 million.
1: That's actually a great segue into into that kind of politics, because as you just said, on the one hand, it's much easier. And on the other hand, there is something, and and I don't, I recognize here that I may be projecting onto you less sexy about it, right? (laughs) You've been following the drama of national politics. You feel very strongly. I can imagine somebody listening to this. They feel very strongly about Donald Trump, like, positive or negative. I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this great fight for the future of the country. And then you say, well, yeah, but you live in Illinois and the Illinois State House makes a lot of very important decisions for people's lives. It's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm just not, not as emotionally grabbed by that, right? Or as emotionally grabbed by city politics in my suburb of wherever. Make the case on why People listening should run for offices, should should open up a book and find out what offices they can run for near them that are not national politics.
2: Two big reasons. The first is over the course of the last 20 years or so, we've really seen federalism take hold, where at the state and local level, so many decisions are being made. And the notion of small government at the national level is giving more and more opportunities for state and local governments to play an active role. So when we think about overturning Roe versus Wade, for example— What that's going to mean if the Trump administration manages to appoint two Supreme Court nominees and the Senate confirms them, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, all abortion-related decisions will be made at the state level. At the state level right now, more than 30 states have on the books laws that are currently unconstitutional because they restrict a woman's right to choose beyond what the Supreme Court has said is okay. All of those laws go into effect when Roe v. Wade is overturned. So if you care about those kinds of issues, the state level is the place to be over the course of at least the next four years. And it's not only abortion politics. On a wide variety of issues, that's actually the, the important piece. The second is we have career ladder politics in this country. So what that means is most of the people that ultimately run for high level office have run for local or state level office first and have built up a following and have built up a constituency and have gained experience. And that makes them more likely to win when they run for federal office. So there are both strategic and policy reasons that running at the state or the local level is a good idea.
1: And Barack Obama being a a great example, that state senator in Illinois.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
3: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: The other thing that I think is interesting here is that it's funny because we went there and we, make, we made an argument. You made an argument for state politics through a national prism, right? right. State politics is still a place to, to fight the national fight, still a place that you can maybe get into national <clears> politics. <throat> One thing that has always struck me talking to local politicians, it often seems like a better job to me. <laughs> You're representing the people right next to you. You work in your city, right, as opposed right. to you're in the state house, you know, somewhere very different or even even worse, you're commuting back and forth from Washington. The lives of members of Congress actually seem to me like an unending hell. I, <laughs> I cannot believe what we <laughs> – what, what this, the travel schedule of it is. But you're representing people near you. It's often not that partisan. Cities tend to – you know, there's a – I'm not saying ideological unity is a good thing, but there's more of a community of interest. So people aren't quite as far apart from each other. So it's not quite as conflictual. And you really, really do make policy that in an immediate way affects people's lives, like right around you. It's a very kind of inspiring... I really enjoy city politics. It's a very inspiring space.
2: I think that's right. And I think that what you just described is something that people that didn't necessarily take a city or an urban politics class in college know. So I can tell you that when I was running for Congress, we would go door to door and talk to people. And when we asked them what issues were most important to them, more often than not, they were issues that the United States House of Representatives had no control over and would not be able to influence at all. And so airport runways in Providence potholes and just destruction of the city streets, these were the things that people cared about on a day-to-day basis. It made it difficult, literally, to drive their kids to school. It made it difficult for them to feel confident when they boarded a plane that they were going to be able to take off or land. And these were decisions that were actually made at the state and local level. And when we would tell people, oh, that's great, we agree with your view, but that's not actually something that we can influence, you should talk to, and we would tell them, whether it was the Warwick City Council or the Cranston mayor— They were completely shocked. They didn't really differentiate between the city and the state, let alone the federal government, when it came to the kinds of things that affect their day-to-day lives.
1: Do you think we in the media have done American democracy a disservice by focusing so relentlessly on all that is wrong in politics? And, And to maybe even sharpen that question a bit, I think of somebody who reads my coverage and they read about ideological polarization. They read about veto points and rules like the filibuster that make it so hard to get anything done. They read about gerrymandering. They read about money in politics. They read about the difficulty of ever finding agreement in a place where people are so driven by group allegiance. And my view of politics in some ways more nuanced than that. I, I don't... I think most of the people in it are good. I think they're doing their best and I think a lot of good actually gets done, at least at certain times. But it would be a very dispiriting picture when you step back and look at it.
2: I think the media are in part to blame because they're not covering the successes with the same level of excitement as they seem to be covering the failures. That said, I think the media are stuck between a rock and a hard place because, you cover what's newsworthy. And people doing their jobs and showing up at work and accomplishing what they're supposed to accomplish isn't necessarily newsworthy. It's what the American people expect from their government. So it's when there is a shutdown or it's when the filibuster is going to make it virtually impossible for any piece of legislation to move through that that becomes a story. And so something that Richard and I talk about in the book is the idea that if we could spotlight some of the successes, whether they be at the national or the state legislative level from time to time, and people could see not only congressmen behaving badly, but also state legislators doing something good in their community, even if that's portrayed more as a human interest story, it might open up the dialogue and it might make the next generation think that, oh, maybe I don't have to work behind the scenes or maybe I don't have to go work for an NGO in order to affect change. Maybe electoral moral politics can be an effective route.
1: It's funny. I'm always struck when I deal with politicians, pretty when I deal with them a little bit outside of the spotlight, when I'm going in to hear about a bill or whatever it might be, just how normal and workaday the job is and how different it is than the hyper-conflictual job you see on television that, you know, and here I'm talking mainly about Congress, which I, I just have more experience covering than state houses. Most of what they are doing, nobody's ever hearing about. It's not the big bill. It is some appropriations bill you haven't heard of. It is constituent service and all these parts of the job that I think they find very inspiring, that they find very sustaining. But those parts of the job, they don't get coverage because it's not that they're not interesting, but they are not a point of contention that leads to intense emotions in the viewer.
2: That's right. And what's interesting too is there's a large body of political science research about political learning. And what those scholars find is that when people actually interact with elected officials, On a personal level or when they are accessing constituent services, they wind up having a better impression of government and elected officials overall because they are then extrapolating from that experience. So what happens is when people interact, they're just as fulfilled as a lot of these politicians are by doing the day-to-day work. It's just that that's not the experience that most individuals have. They're not going to the member of Congress and asking for something. They're not engaging in the process. Instead, they're just watching on TV the aspects of the job that the members themselves also probably dislike the most.
1: So I want to move from here to another aspect of your research, which is the representation of women in, in elected office. And you write... That, and, and I think I want to read this because I think it may not be intuitive to people. You write that study after study finds that when women run for office, they perform just as well as men do. There are no differences that emerge in women and men's fundraising receipts, in their vote totals, or in their electoral successes. Yet women remain severely underrepresented in U.S. political institutions, and the fundamental reason is that they do not run for office. Why don't they run?
2: The two big reasons that they don't run are that Nobody has ever asked them or suggested it, and they don't think they're qualified. And let me just elaborate a little bit on both. That conclusion that women don't run for office is drawn from three national surveys of what we consider potential candidates. So these are lawyers, business leaders, educators, and political activists, which are the four professions that are most likely to lead to congressional or state legislative candidacies. And we surveyed and interviewed national samples of women and men in those fields in 2001, 2008, and 2011. And what we found was that women were about a third less likely than men ever to consider running for office. And then those who had considered it, women were about a third less likely than men actually to do it. When they ran, we had about 400 people at each survey point actually throw their hats into the ring. Women, just like previous studies found, were just as likely to win their races, whether they're at the state, local, or national level. But men and women both are much more likely to consider running when they receive the suggestion, whether it be from a party leader or an elected official or even a family member, colleague, or friend. Yet men are about 30% more likely than women to report that somebody has ever suggested it to them or given them that nudge. And as far as the qualifications are concerned, it was stunning if I showed you the resumes of the women and men that we surveyed and interviewed and blacked out the names, you would not be able to tell them apart. They had the same backgrounds, the same credentials, the same levels of political interest. And about 60% of the men, but only 40% of the women, thought that they had the qualifications to run. But it's worse than that because the women who don't think they're qualified to run write off the idea of running altogether. The men who don't think they're qualified look around and say, well, most politicians aren't qualified. I could still give this a shot. So there's this double disadvantage when it comes to, you know, (laughs) yes. I I mean, the upside to Donald Trump might be that he opens the floodgates and people realize that, oh, it really takes nothing. You have to have no qualifications. You can just put yourself in there. We'll see. Maybe that'll be his great gift to democracy.
1: Well, I actually thought, and and I want to dig deeper into this research, but I don't know if that'll be the upside to Donald Trump, but <laughs> I was watching the women's march. Uh, the women's marches this weekend, last weekend, which is when we're when we're recording here, and I was thinking while watching that that putting aside the politics of it, what an amazing legacy of the Clinton campaign. Women in this country looked at this and looked around at these marches and said, "You know what? We actually just can't keep ceding the ground of elected office," and. If it helps, and I know there are groups out there like Emily's List are already trying to do this. But, you know, I, I looked at those and I wondered, you know, how many of these women are going to run for something? And could that actually become one of the goals of whatever movement, if a movement emerges out of this? It doesn't have to be an anti-Trump movement. In terms of long-term politics, it would be so meaningful if just more women got that nudge and got that push and, and had a supportive network to just run for office, whatever their politics were.
2: I think that's right. I was at the march in D.C. and I was there with my mother and she said that she had never seen anything like it. So I'm I'm 41. I had never seen anything like it. But she's 69. And so she grew up where this was something that was far more likely to happen. And it was incredibly powerful. And one of the moments for me that was the most powerful was when the female Democratic members of Congress stood on the podium and encouraged the half million people standing there and the millions of people across the country to throw their own hats into the ring and consider running for office. Because it doesn't need to be a personal ask. It's not like somebody has to call you on the phone and say, listen, I've been thinking about it. You need to run. Planting that seed, even broadly to an entire audience like that, could really go a long way. And women's organizations report unprecedented levels of interest in their candidate training programs in the last month and a half or so. So Mm -hmm. if that interest in candidate training actually translates into candidacies, That could be something that the Clinton campaign wasn't expecting, and it could be something that could fundamentally change the face of politics.
1: And I'd be interested, what are those organizations? So I know Emily's List. I know they did a number of big trainings after the march, which I thought was a a really great thing. What are the organizations, if you're listening to this, if you're a woman listening to this and you are thinking about running for office, who do you reach out to?
2: So one of the best organizations, and my disclosure is I'm on the National Advisory Board, is Emerge America. And they have affiliates in 15 or 16 states now called Emerge whatever the state is, so Emerge Maryland, Emerge Virginia. And what they do is train women to run for all levels of office, local, state, whatever you're interested in. They don't fund candidates. They raise money to support candidate trainings. And they don't endorse candidates, but they have small cohorts. So what happens is you're trained with a group of 20 or 25 other women, and those women then become your support network. So when you run, you know right off the bat that you have this kitchen cabinet of supporters who are going to help you build your network and ultimately launch a candidacy.
1: So to go back then to to the research, what you were discussing where men either think they are more qualified than women do or if they don't think they're qualified, don't think the qualifications matter, that is a broad societal finding, right? We see this in other areas of yes. pursuit too. And it's not the only thing going on here.
2: Right. So what compounds it in politics is that part of the reason women don't think they're qualified is because they think they would have to be twice as qualified to get half as far because of perceptions of widespread bias and sexism in politics. So it's one thing to doubt your qualifications. It's another thing to doubt your qualifications as a rational response to what you see as pervasive sexism. And so the challenge is to let people know that what they saw during the presidential election, for example, and what they saw in how Donald Trump treated, whether it be Carly Fiorina or Megyn Kelly or Hillary Clinton or any of these other women, is not typical in a campaign. We asked people whether they thought – a national sample of people – whether they thought that when women ran for office, they were just as likely to win, whether they thought women could raise just as much money as men, whether they thought the media treated women fairly. And across the board on all of these dynamics, there were widespread perceptions of sexism and bias. And what's really interesting here is that at the local and state level, but even at the congressional level, there's just no evidence of that. Even media coverage of male and female candidates now, when you move away from the presidential level, looks exactly the same. It's just that that's another way that these very high profile races and contests sort of warp people's perceptions of what their experiences would be like.
1: Do you think there was sexism in the 2016 campaign?
2: I do. I don't know that it affected the outcome, but I do think that the fact that it was not disqualifying for Donald Trump to say the kinds of things that he said means that we are willing to turn a blind eye to sexism. Now, again, this is not to say that his attitudes toward Hillary Clinton cost her the election. She was a flawed candidate and there were lots of reasons that people didn't vote for her. And it's also possible that the people who engaged in overt sexism or spoke about her in explicitly sexist ways would never have voted for any democrat. But I do think we saw over the course of the last month of the campaign in particular, but over the course of the last year and a half, a willingness to accept sexist rhetoric in a way that we as a country probably thought we were a little bit beyond.
1: There was something in the campaign that I ended up giving a lot of thought to that I'd love to get your opinion on. So I did this long profile of Hillary Clinton. And the thing I was trying to understand with her was why did I get such a different report on her from people who had worked with her, even Republicans who had worked with her, than I saw of her on the campaign trail, than I heard from people following her on the campaign trail. And one of the things I ended up concluding is that Clinton had a leadership style that in the leadership literature is associated with women. It's a much more listening-oriented style. She often would do her campaigns, beginning them in these weird, in these listening tours that right. the media was always very confused by. She was a consensus builder. She liked to work with people one-on-one or in small groups, whereas American politics is, and particularly campaigning in American politics, is basically based on the skill of getting up in front of a room and speaking confidently. And Clinton was able, it seemed to me, to fashion a again i'm using stereotypes and generalizations but a a what you would code as a female way of running for office she built a huge coalition within the democratic party she had a, a level of in, institutional support you would never see from a non-incumbent she did these listening tours she did a lot in small groups and people looked at that and they said why is she so inauthentic and strange in front of a crowd? And look at how many people have endorsed her. She's part of the establishment. And it, it seemed to me as I as I watched this go forward that there was a subtle way in which the structure of American politics and, and, and American campaigning has been built to favor stereotypically male traits. And I don't know what you do about that, but I, I'd be curious if you think that's accurate.
2: I think that is accurate. And I think it's even a little bit more dramatic than what you described in that the women who make it into politics, and certainly women who have achieved the levels of success that Clinton has, already have those male traits, right? So in a lot of ways, she's the most male of the female candidates when we think about female leadership styles. I think your characterization of her leadership style and how she built the campaign and coalition is right. And even then, it's still probably closer to what we would expect from a male candidate or a male leadership style. I think part of what happened and part of the reason people don't really know what to make of it or do with it is that, She was not Barack Obama in terms of her speaking. She was not Barack Obama in terms of her ability to communicate to these huge, huge audiences. And people tend to look at the most recent success story and gauge a candidate or a successor using that yardstick. And so on the qualities and the traits that she possessed that people liked, those weren't necessarily the ones that were most salient when they were evaluating her.
1: It makes me wonder if there are differences in in female representation in countries that have parliamentary systems, countries where part of how you get into office is that you have impressed your colleagues. Does that show a difference in in representation?
2: It does. So as of a week ago, the United States now ranks 101st globally in the percentage of women in the national legislature. That is terrible. Yeah. So 100 (laughs) nations surpass us. And there are two things that are big predictors of who's ahead of us. The first is quotas, right? So about a third of the nations or 40 percent of the nations that surpass us have some kind of explicit quota, whether it's a quota for the parties in the number of candidates they have to run or whether it's a, a quota in terms of reserved seats for women. The others that are ahead of us have parliamentary systems where the party is basically recruiting you to run and is supporting you and is helping you run your campaign and you're part of a list. So you're part of a group. There's this group dynamic. You want everyone on the list to win because if you get as many seats as you can possibly get, you're going to have a bigger effect in the parliament. And so you're not running in this individualistic kind of way. You're not running as a political entrepreneur. You're running as part of a team. And that's more conducive to conceptions of women's traditional leadership styles.
1: It's interesting to try to match this research a little bit with what you were saying earlier, which is that when women do run, there is no difference in outcomes. And it makes me wonder, are we seeing that because of the small sample of women who run the sort of Jackie Robinson effect where the women who run are because it's a higher bar and because you have to make it and be willing to make it in a potentially unfriendly territory? You're seeing extremely good candidates compared to the average man.
2: So There are arguments out there, and I I mean, I subscribe to them, that it could be that the women are better than the men, so actually they should be outperforming them, not just doing as well. And in fact, there's some degree of bias when we consider the fact that they're only doing as well. But in a recent book that Danny Hayes and I wrote, we looked at the 2010 and 2014 elections for the House of Representatives in particular, and we tracked the candidate quality of all of the general election candidates. And by that, we just mean whether they held any. kind of previous office. And there we actually found that the low-quality women and the low-quality men fared the same. And the high-quality women and the high-quality men did just as well. So there is a selection effect in that the women who run probably are a little bit more qualified than the men. But the women who are not more qualified don't do any worse or take any disproportionate of a hit than the men who are not qualified.
1: So to connect the two conversations we've been having here, it sounds like what you're saying is that... A lot of American politics and representation in American politics and who runs for American politics are held back by beliefs that whether or not they're wrong, they are certainly an impediment to to people running for office. One that particularly among young people, politics is just a terrible occupation that people in it are bad. Participating in it would be unpleasant. It just isn't for them. And two that for women that even if you do want to do it, you're going to lose that politics is hostile, sexist. And that the combination of these has ended up being, whether or not they're coming for reasonable reasons, it has ended up being really damaging to the outcomes many of the people who hold these opinions want to see.
2: That's right. And because debunking those two myths becomes imperative, if we're actually going to broaden the number of people that are interested in running for office and broaden the backgrounds from which they come, it's very, very challenging because... Both the media and elected officials have incentives to continue as business as usual. So the media have bottom line concerns. And so reporting scandals, reporting bad behavior, reporting failure and dysfunction sells, right? And so they have an incentive to do that. And elected officials who are currently in office keep getting reelected. So even if they look around and say, oh, the system's awful, I wish we could get more done, They're not being held accountable for the fact that they're not getting more done. So they have little incentive to bring about any kind of fundamental change because it could potentially imperil their own prospects for reelection. But
1: it sounds to me a little bit like there's a third here, which is there are a lot of very well-meaning people who what they want to do is make politics less corrupt, make it less conflictual, make it less sexist. And the way they figure they'll do it is by pointing out all of the ways continuously in which it is corrupt, in which it is confliction, in which it is sexist. It sounds to me that what you're saying is that there's a little bit of a backlash effect to that. That what people hear is not, hey, let's fix that, but hey, let's disengage from this.
2: That's right. And let me just give you one example. So I think Emily's List is an amazing organization. I think part of the reason that women do as well when they run for high-level offices they do is because Emily's List trains them and supports them and introduces them to a network of donors. However, Emily's List, Emerge, the Women's Campaign Fund, all of these organizations also have to raise a lot of money. And one of the best and effective ways to raise money is with a message that is along the lines of oh, my gosh, look at what they're doing to women. Women can't run. Look at all of this bias. Look at all this sexism. We need to raise money so we can stop that. And what winds up happening is they're raising money on a message that ultimately deters women from running for office. And figuring out how to thread that needle and still raise money so that they can make sure that they're tamping down on the sexism that does exist without making it seem more widespread than it is becomes really tricky.
1: Do you think anybody out there is being able to do it?
2: Well, I have been incredibly impressed by the fact that so many of these women's organizations have been willing to listen to us and meet with us and talk about these messages. I think last cycle, there was a pretty clear attempt on the part of Emily's List in particular to consider some of this sexist behavior anomalous and not to say things like, look at what women have to experience when they run for office, but instead to say things like, look at what Donald Trump is doing. We can't let him behave that way, as opposed to we can't let men continue to behave this way to female candidates. And so being able to strike that balance is a challenge. But I do think that organizations are beginning to realize that they have to do it if they want to increase the number of female candidates. Let's
1: say you're listening to this discussion and you know that you cannot become a member of politics full time, right? You you have a life, you have a family, you right. have a job. What are the kinds of offices that maybe people haven't thought about, but that are a way to contribute to their community, a way to be involved in politics, a way to participate, a way to have some of those meaningful interactions with your neighbors and your fellow citizens that that you that you discussed so eloquently that maybe people don't think of
2: well the highest level office where that's often the case is the state legislature so about two-thirds of states have what we call non-professional state legislatures where these are not legislatures that meet full time they don't meet every day sometimes they don't even meet for six or eight months of the year in Rhode Island, for example, the state legislature was in session six months, but they wouldn't convene until 4 p.m. So most people had their regular job and then they would go to the state house from four to seven or eight on days that they were in session. Now, that makes it difficult if you have childcare responsibilities, but if your kids are already out of the house and you don't, or if you're retired and you're looking for sort of an extracurricular activity, it's not incredibly onerous. You don't have to show up the way that you would in New York or California or Illinois. School boards are another example. So many people are needed to serve on school boards. About half of the local positions that we count are at the school board level because almost every school district has its own school board. And those are offices where there's usually a meeting once a month, but you play a major role in what's going on in education policy in your town. And then there are also a lot of local positions that people don't realize are often political. So in many states, local judges run for election, the county coroner, the auditor, the dog catcher, and a lot of these, a lot of these local positions are actually elected positions. And so what that means is your job might not be that political per se on a day-to-day basis, but you're part of the political people in that town and you get to weigh in on the kinds of decisions that they make and you're part of that circle.
1: Do people still run for dog catcher? Is that a real thing?
2: It's a real thing. It's a real thing. I a is lot of places dog now, catcher? Occasionally. It's now more about, you know, sort of director of animal control. But I, my sense is you're still doing the same job and dog catcher's sexier.
0: This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen.
1: It was interesting what you just said about Rhode Island because that feels like a way some of those – structured legislatures feel like a way in which we have made politics harder for, let's not say women, let's say, but yes, women who have families to to participate in. And you actually have a line in a paper you did where you say that one of the reasons it's often hard for women to run for office is that women are still responsible for the majority of childcare and household tasks. I was thinking about that when you said that. That on the one hand, in theory, that should be exactly as hard for men, right? If men have right. kids, if men, but we That's wouldn't say it that way, no, right? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. There's obviously the issue of just broad societal equity in childcare and in, in home care. But how do you structure holding office so that it's actually family friendly?
2: It's difficult. There are certain states and there are certain cities that have more hospitable child care policies. The federal government certainly has stopped short of providing the kind of child care that would allow for more equity in terms of the household distribution of labor. But some cities and states have that. I should note, though, that although it makes it more complicated – the good news is we've reached a point in society now where it doesn't deter women from considering a candidacy. So they don't write off the idea of running simply because they have childcare responsibilities. It's just that the onus is on them to figure out how to juggle it more. But another thing to consider is that. Because a state like Rhode Island or New Hampshire, where the New Hampshire State House there are 400 members. New Hampshire has a population that's not much bigger than that. Almost everybody is expected to be an elected official. The norm is that the state house and the legislators meet on a certain day at certain times over the course of the year. And that doesn't change. So allowing for there to be a little bit less flexibility in the schedule is actually a good thing because people can plan around that. So... The less professional the legislature, the more likely it is that you can actually figure out your childcare arrangements in advance. You're not going to be there overnight figuring out how to get a bill passed the way you might be in New York.
1: What is the single best piece of advice you got when you ran for office?
2: So this is going to sound a little bit silly, but it was given to me by David Cicilline, who's now in Congress. He was the mayor of Providence at the time. And he said that a lot of people won't do it. But when you're running for office, you always have to wear your own button. And I thought, that's so silly. Why would I ever wear my own button? And he said that if you can't be your own biggest advocate, then why is anyone else going to put a button on for you? And I've got to say that when I was wearing the button, I realized I'm a candidate right now. When you don't have it on, you can sometimes sort of slip into behavior where, oh, you're seeing somebody. You don't want to talk to them. You might not. But when you have that button on. You're that brand. And I know it sounds somewhat trivial, but it was the best piece of advice I received.
1: I love that actually. That (laughs) it's like your sort of armor out there, right? It shows what you're doing. There's a story it reminds me of, and I don't remember who told it now, but somebody went to Kanye West's home and they walked in, and in his home, there's a huge portrait of Kanye West. (laughs) And the guy said, What's up with the big picture of you in your in your hallway, dude? And he said, If I'm not going to be my own biggest fan, who is? Huh. And, you know, I'm not going to hang a picture of myself on my wall. Why would I expect anybody else to do it? Right. And I have not taken that advice.
2: Nor have I.
1: But it stopped at the button. There's something I like about that. (laughs) What are three books you've read that that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
2: First is Why We Lost the ERA by Jane Mansbridge. And so this was a book that I read in college and then I read again in graduate school. But it's a book that really talks about the power of women at the local level and at the grassroots level to affect change and what happens when they stop short of doing so. I think that that's an incredibly important,
1: compelling book. Can you talk for a minute about why did we lose the ERA? And and for people who don't know, the ERA here is the Equal Rights Amendment.
2: Right. So- Part of the reason that we lost the ERA was because the sense out there was that, well, women already have equal rights. And if we go down this path and we pass an amendment, then that's a very slippery slope. All of a sudden, you're going to have unisex bathrooms. Literally, that was the major concern out there, which is not that different from our bathroom concerns of 2016 and 2017 today, just in a different way. And it just seemed like it was pushing too far. So there were these conservative activists who felt like, you know what, there's no reason to go down that path. Women have equal rights under the law. And by the time that the activists began to realize that this was the issue and it wasn't the notion of sort of equal rights in general, it was a little bit too late. I also... I read the day that it came out. I just sat there and read the whole thing probably for 24 hours was My Life by Bill Clinton. And one of the reasons that I found that book so compelling was because he says in a way that only Bill Clinton can, sometime in my 16th year, I decided that I would run for office. And I remember thinking first, who speaks like that? But second, he means it. Like he really Mm -hmm. woke up one morning when he was in his 16th year and decided that he was going to run for office. And the great thing about that book, I think, is it just shows over time exactly how he realized those ambitions and how he structured his entire life to achieve those kinds of goals. So I would say that that's, um, you know, that that's pretty important. And a third book, there are so many others. I...
1: Well, well, let me let know. me sharpen it then. What is a book that will make people feel optimistic about politics? We've talked here about how so much of what people consume about politics is about what's wrong with it. Right. What is a book that will make people think a bit about what is right with it?
2: So I would say as far as academic books are concerned, I would encourage them to read Running From Office, Why Young Americans Are Turned Off to Politics. And Who wrote that's, that book? Uh, so it's funny, is, <laughs> but I think Richard and I tried to end that book on an optimistic note because The main counterintuitive finding from the book is that the more you pay attention, the more likely you are to say that it's something that you want to do, that you do want to run for office. And so what that means is that when you immerse yourself in the system and when you see what's going on, you do happen upon some pretty positive, good examples. It's just that you're not going to find those in a cursory look of the news of the day. But more seriously, I would say. And again, this is just this is the other Clinton. I think Hillary Clinton's most recent book, which she pretty much used to launch her campaign, you know, focuses on all of the successes that she had as secretary of state. But it really paints a picture of diplomacy and the importance of working not only domestically, but internationally to elevate the status of women, to elevate the status of marginalized groups and to be able to do so much in the course of just four years, I think, highlights the potential of elected and appointed positions.
1: I wanted to call out another finding from Running for off, running From Office, your, your book, which is that parents have a role to play here too, that kids who grow up in, in households where people talk about politics, where, where people watch political debates, they end up having a, a different view on it. And that uh, I thought an interesting implication of the book was that... To the extent that you're now shying away from talking about politics because it's conflictual, because it's ugly, because it, it it feels bad, what you're doing is turning – with your kids, what you're doing is turning off the next generation. To the extent that you're able to have political discourse and debate be something that happens in your household, it's a way you you know early on acculturate children to the idea that this is something they should be engaged in and it is for them.
2: That's right. And in 2012, when we did this survey of high school and college students, about 50% of them had never had any kind of political conversation with their parents whatsoever. In part, when we pushed them on it, because they said that their parents didn't want to talk about what was negative, they didn't want to talk about conflict, they didn't want to talk about scandals. So if you fast forward four years, although we did not survey students in 2016, you can imagine that. There were far more aspects of this election cycle that were probably not appropriate for a dinnertime conversation if the things that Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were arguing about in 2012 were deemed unsavory. And that is problematic because the exposure in the household is what ultimately encourages students to take political science classes, to join political clubs. And that those are the kinds of activities that then sustain further interest.
1: Jennifer Lawless, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer Lawless, for being here. I found that inspiring and encouraging. I hope you do, too. As always, thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panably production, and we'll be back next week.
3: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of.